Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Anand and Sakib. Uh, we're here to talk about a lot of things going on in tennis uh, recently. One was a Labor Cup. Um, we also had a couple of winners on the men's and women's tour, uh, Damir Jumur and Caroline Garcia. All of this leading to the event in Beijing next week. Um, Sakib, so... This week. This week, yeah, yes. And Tokyo. And... Um, and there's there's obviously a lot to look forward to, so let's go. All right, Sakib. So let's talk about the Labor Cup. Um, obviously, a huge success, and uh, there were many storylines coming out of it. Um, tell me what you saw. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, this was uh, an event that <clears throat> had tennis Twitter, which is I think uh, your place for to gauge the temperature check uh, on both, you know, men's and women's tour. And people were divided, uh, and like, and rightfully so, because this was a first-of-a-kind event, and the word exhibition was during rounds. And uh, a lot of time, for me at least, English being a second language, there's a lot in the written word, because you can't, you cannot really uh, connect with the tone. But what I grabbed was there were two sides of the word exhibition. Uh, there are a lot of fans who think, uh, you know, Roger Federer, is using his influence and they were not happy and they just wanted to call it what it is, an exhibition. And uh, then there were a lot of other people who believe, you know, uh, when Roger got this kind of a star-studded lineup, this uh, this move had a lot of intent to gain a very meaningful spot on the on the calendar. And this is easier said than done. But, uh, you know, and, and then the notion was also right, honoring one of the living legends as a, as a society, I think, uh, we have a habit of uh, honoring people when they're gone. So this was a pretty fitting tribute to Labor. He was there so, and he really enjoyed it. Let, let me put one, one of the questions out of the way, which is, do you think that this is going to replace Davis Cup? I, I think it's a very unfair uh, comparison uh, because the Davis Cup has, you know, a tennis pillar like golf's Ryder Cup. It's been there for more than what, 100 years and it's nation versus nation. And maybe it's time for a change? No, I think maybe... A meaningful change for Davis Cup would be they can see how Labor Cup captivated the audiences in a very you know short span just of a weekend. So maybe there's something wrong with Davis Cup. We can talk about it later, but I would say you should not lose it in the first week of February after you just won 10, 10 weeks ago. So maybe Labor, Davis Cup should be something more along the lines of Ryder Cup or even you know like World Cup in other sports. It should happen at least two years, if not every three years. And that'll, you know, with the ever... Uh, uh, the growing demand of uh, the physical and you know the mental drain that the tennis world is maybe that kind of a periodic event when it's spanned over like a few years will get more participation from players as most top men tend to go deep in you know into all these meaningful matches uh, but going back to the question no i don't think so I, I think federer is too much of a traditionalist even though it's his brainchild so he would never want to get rid of davis cup uh, and davis cup is an itf event he would have to cross a lot of hoops and i don't even think it's a fair question. I don't think Roger and Co were thinking. They were just they were trying to create something uh, new uh, in tennis that could be, you know, his legacy. Of course, as a business, but I think uh, the intent was, you know, to provide people in markets that don't host a major tournament or a major Masters 1000, and that did the trick for me. Like being in Prague and the next thing in Chicago, even though Boston was in the running, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, going to Chicago, I think that's the unique format that might keep this thing going for a while till people either get used to it or it becomes a tough sell in the end. I mean, the first 
the first edition is 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 a super hit. I mean, we have to admit. I, I would agree, and I, I think it's it's an unqualified success. Uh, the question, though, is is it a novelty? And this is why a lot of people tuned in. And then now they start to find the flaws as this thing takes on this event, like starts to repeat itself every year. And I can see one big flaw already. I mean, we're not talking about it, but this is Europe versus the rest of the world. Um, I don't know if that's optimal. I mean, it seems like it's uh, it's very one-sided right now with most of the top 10 being filled with European players. And I do understand uh, 15 or 20 years ago, it was the Americans that were uh, dominating tennis. But... Is this the right, even the right um, division of, uh, of of players? I think it is. I mean, that's what I wrote, like in my initial assessment, is the you know the the power totally you know uh, resides in Europe right now in the men's game. There's something you know like 15 years ago with Sampras, Agassi, Korea, Chang, and going a little earlier uh, with the uh, McEnroe and Connors and Ash. So yeah, things have definitely changed, and that's uh, something I think. Uh, Americans would have to get used to it. But I think right now, on the contrary, American audiences from Indian Wells to New York have embraced, you know, the Federer Nadal show. And I think in any market, like, say, Chicago, Seattle, uh, Dallas, wherever there is not a major tournament, if the Labor Cup ends up visiting, you know, uh, the crowds will gather, you know, because tennis is not part of those cities. And I think uh, that could be the part of the intrigue. It's going to be like a roadshow, like the Beatles, you know, the final, you know, like, the final tour or till Federer and Nadal are part of it, I think it's going to draw crowds. But then to me, the legit question is, uh, how many more years do we have of Federer and definitely maybe a few more years of Nadal? So this thing is Federer's baby. He'll probably try to, you know, be part of it. But uh, I think first three, four years for this tournament shouldn't be a concern. Uh, after that, the challenge would be just like ATP's challenge right now to sell the likes of Shapovalov and uh, Team and Zverev and, uh, Kyrgios and Kokinakis, I think Sok, those are the guys who, who and, are going to take inter- forward. It's interesting you mentioned those names and only one European name came up, right? So we can even see, uh, as you say, that balance shifting away from Europe potentially down the line where Shapovalov... No, I, I didn't say Zverev. So Zverev and team, I think those are the two guys who are going to win majors along with maybe Shapovalov and uh, Kyrgios. Kyrgios. And this year, uh, we also saw Tiafo play, who looks very promising. Um, I think, I mean, it could, there could be some parity. That's what I'm saying. Right now, it looks very one-sided. And that's what keeps me a little worried is if this continues for another three years where, say, Europe is winning easy, maybe it doesn't get the kind of momentum that, that we're looking for, that kind of allegiance to, you know, winning this tournament. Yeah, but then Federer is going to be the captain of Team Europe and, you know, that's going to sell half the tickets. So, I mean, it's it's a legit concern, but I think that's the cycle. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, both America, Australia have gone through it. More recently, America, and now Europe has uh, a lot of those, you know, top players. Let's go back to the whole exhibition thing, right? Uh, based on your reaction of what you saw from the players, even that last winning moment, the way Nadal jumped into uh, uh, Federer's arms. I mean, do you feel now that this is... The players are taking this really seriously. This yeah, is, this I, is I, legitimate. It, it, it's it's the only valid argument, even though I was not a believer in this event because uh, totally I didn't know what to expect. But the moment I saw the rest of the world team, you know, giving everything they had in the first day against the likes of uh, Zverev and team, uh, you knew they were like the massive underdogs. All the you know gifs that were floating around were like fifty-seven majors or sixty majors compared to, like, you know, no major finals. So all that was enough to fuel them. And, you know, I McEnroe... Mean, Kyrgios's reaction oh, was Kyrgios golden. and McEnroe are, like, I think, 
two people, you know, like who pretty much have a lot of same things that motivate them. They're team players. McIndoe is a proven team player and Kyrie is already showing because of his love of NBA and team sports that, you know, he belongs in a team environment when he's not that lonely and he'll battle for his mates. So from the day one, let's not even go to the Federer-Kyrgios match and some of the intriguing Federer-Nadal doubles and all that stuff. From day one, it was clear that uh, these players are part of something. Of course, they're doing it for Federer. They were paid handsomely, but they bought into the idea and they were giving it their all. From day one, it was not... Uh, what is an exhibition anyway? Let's go back to that. I mean, we've seen in cricket and tennis, uh, a lot of time exhibition is just a charity event, you know, where players get together to either raise money for a cause or raise money... Uh, for a retired player or it's in memory. I mean, it, it's more fun-filled night in most sports. That's what an exhibition is. But in tennis, anything that doesn't have points can of, often be called an exhibition. But maybe with this Labor Cup, till it finds a permanent uh, intended spot in the calendar, uh, it is an exhibition, but it also has given a new meaning that exhibition can still be serious because that's what we saw. I, I think that's Prague. the key for me is most exhibitions in tennis, uh, you see players fooling around. It, it's not about the winning at all. In fact, I would argue in some cases, players have tanked games and even sets to make things seem competitive. Uh, but that's that was absolutely not the case. In in a couple of the matches, things were very intense. And and the teams were backing these players to win. The coaching was intense. We'll get to that. Um, some of the coaching, at least on the, uh, yeah. the rest of the world side. And um, and I, I feel like it's it's a great thing for the sport because it's always been seen as a sport for an individual to kind of come through. And what I saw here is there's a different element to to wanting to win for for a for a team. Now Davis Cup does the same thing. I agree, but the problem with Davis Cup is. Many of the top players don't have the top players to back them on the other side. So if they win their matches, they're not necessarily being backed always by another equal player. And so it, it just feels a little tepid in some cases where maybe Federer would win his matches, but Wawrinka didn't show up. And then, you know, it's, I don't know, Yves Allegro playing uh, the, the second singles. So I, I just I just feel like in this situation, their stakes are high. Everybody wants to play really, um, you know, play to win. And uh, it's like watching the Bulls versus the Jazz. Yeah, it's probably watching Bulls versus the rest of the world or something, you know, like... Uh, uh, but I think you hit on you hit upon something very <clears throat> sensitive and which has been, I think, the case for the last uh, 12 or 13 years. I think the players' consistency and going deep in majors has a counter effect, which we've spoken many times before, I think, even on this podcast. Uh, because you and me, you know, we grew up watching, you know, late 80s into 90s. And that time they were specialists. And it was not, uh, it was very hard to win Wimbledon and play semis of Roland Garros. Or even you win French Open and you don't even make the fourth round of US Open unless you were Lendl or Edberg. Very few people did that. So what happened now in this last few years is players are going deep. And as a result, not only Davis Cup, the fall season and some of the 500 events in US or even uh, the ATP Tour events in U.S. outside of the Masters have lost its meaning because you never see Federer, Nadal, Djokovic play anything else besides uh, the 1000s or U.S. Open in the United States. And when I was speaking to Rajiv Ram, you remember, uh, we spoke about Indianapolis. And when you and me were following tennis, Becker, Sampras, Courier, it wasn't a Masters 1000, but it had, you know, big players. Agassi, Lendl always played D.C. Yeah, the counter-argument is Federer always plays Halle and Basel. So maybe that's, again... Uh, top players are European, some of it is that, but I still think a lot of it is Federer, Nadal, Djokovic going deep. They can only play 15, 16 events, and it becomes very hard for them 
to expand. And simultaneously, Davis Cup is another event, which is an ITF event, which suffers through identity crisis because these guys, you know, mm-hmm. look at the Davis Cup weeks. They kind of messed up anyway. If you play a final of Australia, a week later is Davis Cup. I, I mean, Davis Cup it, has it, a different problem. I, I think it needs a compressed schedule to really work now in this this kind of an environment where players are playing, as you said, all over the world on different courts. Uh, but coming back to Labor Cup, uh, let me ask you this. We're saying it's a success. We're saying that players... No, I'm saying be- it's the first edition. I mean, look, uh, even IPL and cricket, you have to wait till six, seven balance sheets. First Agreed, but, but even, even even on the evidence of what you saw, and I know we're saying the players were giving it, uh, giving everything they, they had. Do you really feel that is true? Because do you see Rafa losing, losing to Isna, for instance, or even Sox stretching Rafa so much? if he was playing at 100%. Because I get it that he played he played to win, but I don't know if he played with quite the same level of intensity that he showed, say, at the US Open. I mean, you answered the question, I think, uh, yourself. The answer lies there because he won the US Open, his first hardcore tournament in almost four years. And, uh, you know, it took a lot out of him emotionally, even though physically he wasn't this spent because the draw kind of worked out and he peaked at, you know, some of the key moments. So he really was in celebration mode. He committed to Federer and, you know, like Borg and Gottsick and all these guys. So he came and gave it his all. But I don't think uh, he came in very prepared. And then again, even if he was prepared, this is the part of the season, indoor, hardcore, slow or not, which he struggled. So him being stretched by Sock, which was a surprise. But again, you know, we all know what Sock can do. But, you know, Sock seldom does that. And Isner is another guy who can serve anyone off, you know, off the court. So, and, and Nick Kyrgios said that, you know, everyone on this team has a firepower to, you know, on a given day challenge Nadal on the surface. So, I, I don't think any, any anything was scripted there. I don't know if that's what you were No, what I, I'm not saying it was scripted as much as are these guys really, you know, taking it as seriously as they should. Not everyone. I'm saying Kyrgios clearly was, was in tears at the end of his match. So, we know he took it seriously. But when Rafa was playing Sock... If this was a U.S. Open, let's be honest, I, I get, you probably wouldn't have seen it go five sets and... and yeah, but I mean, Rafa, again, doesn't play that well indoors, right? So, Okay, so that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I think for me, that was the little bit of a doubt in my mind was how close each of these matches was. You, you know that the first three or four matches went, all went to tie breaks. Maybe, and, maybe there is a case of Europe thinking Europe was very deep anyway. They underused team and Zverev, who are, again, very good players. And they only played maybe one and two games themselves. And Burdick being the local boy, the Trump card, you know, I think that's that that, that was Tomash's ticket to I think Labor Cup, and I think that's a, a formula these guys are going to use forward if you know they're playing in Japan, and K doesn't qualify, K gets in. Similarly, in Argentina, Delpo gets in. But yeah, going to your point, I think again, I'm going to go out on a limb and just make a uh, make an assessment. I think Europe, even the Federal Nadal, are grounded kind of champions. They they thought I mean this team is a mismatch you know the rest of the world team doesn't really hold so they they just took it lightly and then they found they no they, they didn't uh, I mean look Federer was nursing a back issue so he's at this stage of his career you know he's coming up without practicing and you know he's going deep and Nadal was rightfully you know celebrating you know that U.S. Open win and then a week later they all had to get together in Prague so it's a combination of few things you know they wanted to give it their all but at the same time. They wanted to give it their all at the event. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, like, you know, kill themselves in practice week and just come there limping or, you know. And uh, and the other other side, you know, like, as uh, uh, they were really pumped up and they wanted to prove 
the the tag of the under you know the underdogs and they really took it to heart after the last few tie breaks and Nick Kyrgios just got them going and Sock you know the doubles match first day so they were playing more of a chip on their shoulders because rightfully so the resumes were mismatched so they wanted you know to have a say and you know beat this dream team kind of a collection sure and so one one thing i mean we we should say is the attitude of each team is very different the personality of each team is very different and yes these were underdogs but these were very colorful underdogs too um and very demonstrative and that i think extends to their coach right uh let me ask you maybe switching topics what do you think about on court coaching did you think it was a it was a success i mean you saw very two very different styles between mackenroe and borg as you would see on a tennis court but now you got to see it in their coaching styles as well I mean, we've seen this kind of coaching in Davis Cup where the captain is sitting throughout, you know, uh, with their player on the bench. So to answer your question, uh, I didn't pay too much attention when Borg was on the side because he was doing what traditionally Davis Cup captains have done. He was uh, motivating his players, just, you know, high-fiving. We didn't hear much or if... If Borg said something, I didn't pay much attention because you did know, you did you watch uh, uh, did you watch on the other side though the conversation between McEnroe and Sock? Yeah, I mean, of course, McEnroe. You know, this is something Taylor made, and he he probably would he probably would cross a line. But again, that's seen in good competition. Nadal didn't seem to mind if you were insinuating about the comment that was made. And uh, yeah, I mean, McEnroe. I think uh, again, it I, seemed to motivate Sock. I mean, he chewed him out. He he, called, he said he was. Is not being a strong enough competitor, and uh, Sock seemed to step up his level after that. Yeah, Sock played a very good set against Nadal, but I think uh, uh, McEnroe, the coach, definitely I think was a fresh, uh, uh, you know, fresh perspective than McEnroe, the commentator. Because I think even in commentary box, he's doing these kind of things, which sometimes uh, are, you know, like not sitting well with a lot of tennis audiences, and even his coaching. I mean, I'm not going to say it was a popular. Stat, but it really brought, brought a conversation back uh, of his fiery personality. And uh, I don't know what kind of data he used, or he was just like uh, motivating these guys old school way, just challenging their pride. Uh, not sure if that's a good fit in the long run, but he definitely. I think that's that's the key here, right? Would this strategy work every single time, right? Here, there was so much energy to the event. You know, players were playing for something, and McEnroe's. I think McEnroe kind of capitalized upon all of that and kind of gave them that push but and patrick mcenroe well <laughs> let's not talk about patrick here okay. <laughs> i mean john uh i think that the one thing for me is when i looked at him coach kirios for instance i think there's been a lot of speculation whether kirios can actually take on mcenroe as a coach and then do what the other players have done right uh, move on to the next level I don't see it happening personally. Yeah, there's two strong personalities. Remember when McEnroe just had ended playing, he coached Becker for like two weeks in the '93 U.S. Open. That partnership didn't last because Becker obviously lost. Was it '93 or '94? Yeah, I remember that. He lost to I think Magnus Larsson or something. He was a consultant. That that didn't fly long. No, for me, for me, coaching has different elements. One is obviously all the prep work they put into uh, what what happens on the court, right? The physical stuff, get it, training and all that stuff. Then the second thing is really what we saw with people like Djokovic and uh, Becker or uh, Lendl and Murray, the super coach, where they're really mentally, they're showing them something, you know, prepping them in that form. I think the third element for me is respect. Um, and I say this because a player really needs to have that respect for his coach to take them seriously. 
right? So you look at somebody like even a Federer and Edberg relationship, you clearly knew for that super coach relationship to work, Federer really had to put aside his own ego of being one of the best players around and listen to a guy who he idolized. And I think the same happened with Murray and Lendl and to some extent with Jocker and, um, and, uh, and Becker as well. When it comes to McEnroe and Kyrgios, I find all the other intangibles. Sure, Kyrgios is going to train as hard as he can he, if he has the right staff. McEnroe will teach him maybe, give him the pointers on how to win in tough situations. But when the going gets tough, will Kyrgios actually listen to uh, McEnroe? I mean, will he respect him the way these guys have respected their coaches? I don't see that because Kyrgios is the kind of guy who I think when he gets into that kind of an abrasive situation... He's probably going to call out McEnroe for being a jerk or he might even, you know, there, there might be some friction, not that respect where he says, OK, I'm going to put aside my ego and listen to what you're saying. I think what you're saying makes sense. But then the big difference, the fundamental difference is the examples you cited with the Federer, Djokovic and uh, Murray. They wanted those guys to coach him. Nick hasn't dropped even a hint. Well, assuming uh, McEnroe coaches Nick, if that ever happened, then that would be because Nick wanted McEnroe on his team, correct? Yeah, if if that's uh, where we're going, we we don't know. I mean, that could be like definitely a match made in, you know, media heaven. I mean, it'll give stories, especially in a major, like almost every day. And I think really jokes about where McEnroe can relate to Nick. Nick, a lot of time is misunderstood. So maybe that's where John can, you know, be a good counselor. But honestly, I mean, as talented and genius John McEnroe is, I think uh, we are living in a data where coaches, super coaches or not, there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of analytics out there on, you know, reporting. Gone is a day that, you know, come over the backhand and, you know, use your will or fifth set is about the heart. All these are good sayings. Uh, but I don't know if McEnroe is, you know, at this stage in his career, he's going to like go into the analytics. I know he's a genius. But do you feel like Becker went into analytics? With Jog- Jog- that, that's why I've always maintained. Marin Vaida was the key piece in that puzzle. I think he was doing the dirty work. Becker was just like the motivation. I, I feel like all of these things... They, they all come together. And that I feel like each each piece is necessary. Uh, and some of it is just purely, I mean, tactical stuff. Like, you know, what has happened to Federer's backhand or his, his volley game and things like that, where there was clearly an impact of a coach coming in and making, him, making them play a different way. But I do think the intangibles, I mean, you could see it actually in, even now with Rafa and Moya. Uh, I think the the mental aspect of things has changed with Rafa taking yeah, on. Yeah, but Moya is like Lubitschi. These guys were on the tour not maybe too long ago, four or five years. Not only they know half the veterans on the tour, and they probably are a byproduct of you know like doing some research. And 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 I'm not look. I'm not shortchanging John McEnroe. Who am I? John McEnroe is one of the you know most talented guys ever to pick a racket. The guy's genius. But I'm just saying you know like his who was it Bialik who came and said on the podcast a few weeks ago that he's, you know, he's heard that McEnroe sometimes comes unprepared for commentary. But unlike, that's not the norm. Like Blake and others really put in a lot of prep work. So my only thing is John succeeding with anyone. John has to buy in what the game has become. I think it's just, maybe in a team environment, that's more motivation for a three-day period. I think one of the most underrated things about McEnroe was his sheer desire and will to win. Right, he and this is where I think he will struggle with a guy like Kyrgios, and because Kyrgios, on the other hand, I I actually think that well, yeah, put, put in certain situations, he really like comes out firing against like people like Nadal and uh, uh, Roger, but 
it's against the lesser players that Kyrgios has suffered. And McEnroe never lost to those lesser players in his career, despite being who he was. And um, and this is where I think McEnroe will struggle with a guy like Kyrgios. As much as McEnroe was a maverick, he was also an intensely focused winner. Uh, and I don't see that happening with Kyrgios, uh, at least in the near future. So this is I, I, this is why I think they're not actually a match made in heaven. I think it'll be... Yeah, I think hell. it's a media story. You, you're absolutely right. Media, you know, like... Uh... A lot of people just look for angles and this was a maybe mouth-watering angle for a lot of people to explore. Uh, let me uh, ask you about another angle that media has played after Labor Cup. I understand and I, I think we both are on the same page that Federer and Nadal really get along and they see the big picture, especially they have, over the last few years, they have even gotten along more. But to call them as friends, I think is kind of rubbish. I think they are like colleagues they're like you know friends at work at best but they're not friends they're rivals first. Okay, let, let's let's say this let's say that they are friends okay let's say they are the best friends honestly who the hell cares i mean if you are a federal fan do you take pride in his friendship with rafa or do you take pride in the fact that he's just beaten rafa four times straight i mean no no, that's a fan's angle but i, but I honestly think they are two professionals who get the big picture and they're like amicable and they leave competition on court but at the same time in the profession that's cutthroat as men's tennis one-on-one there's a reason Federer and Nadal have never practiced together there's a reason they say Federer and Djokovic have never practiced together because you don't want to lose that edge so how can people and media make up these stories They're I think friends. so I think on that edge or who's your best friend at work I mean how many people at work you call your best friend I mean true true but <laughs> but but here's where I'm going with this is on that they may be willing to relax that at this no, stage no, of their no, careers. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they're like, you know, enemies also. They get it. I mean, they they have uh, they have specialized this new breed of like professional tennis players. Would, would you, you agree? Have, would you agree McEnroe and Borg are really good friends? That's, I think, a lot to do with Borg leaving tennis early, I think. Again, I have to watch that movie you know, that came out because I've read certain things about that matchup and seen the HBO Or Chris Everett and Martina. I mean, these are all rivals who became really good friends particularly towards the end of their careers because they shared something which I guess the rest of the world couldn't really understand. I'm okay with that. My point is still as a fan, yeah, I mean, it's great. I'm I'm, I'm awesome. I'm, I feel really happy about these two guys being friends. But when they are on court, it's like two gladiators going at each other. And I, I don't want to think about how, how, how nice they are to each other. I actually want them to go for each other's throats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally agree. But I think sometimes there's a lazy angle here just to, you know, sell something that sounds more lucrative just because, you know, they get along so well, we want to call them friends. I think Novak's dad said something about Andy Murray, like since they're competing for the biggest title, but once they're done, these are two guys who they could see, you know, to be friends. Well, but let I me know- ask you this. So why is then, why, why isn't Federer or Rafa, why aren't they the same way with Djokovic? Um, the way they are with each other. No, no, I mean, I'm, like I said, they do get along, but I just don't want to use the word friends loosely here. I think they're rivals who get along and in a work environment, they get along fine. But uh, just to call them friends, I think that's like trying to sell something else. That that reaction, image. that thing, what we saw at the end of that match. Rafa. No, they were teammates. I mean, you know, these guys are paid handsomely. They're professionals. Yeah. And Nadal bought into the idea of Federer doing this event and they want... I'm, I'm starting of... to think that there was a point genuinely where they wanted to stay out of each other's path when they were, I think, at their peaks. Um, I, I, In spite of what they've done this year, I think you and I both will agree this is not their peak. 
uh, but when peak of their yeah, now rivalry, they can appreciate more. I think this is more like a throwback year, you know. So like it is, and I think they're, the they're sharing this, yeah. and 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 as time passes, I think they're beginning to appreciate also where they what their place is in history, and it's a shared moment I think for them, and uh, that's what's making them get closer. To your point, though, I I really think, the, I mean, this is all great for now, but they could be great friends in the future. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Look, again, there's a lot of speculation on other things. Like uh, Federer has played four matches for Africa, and they have been with, you know, uh, Nadal, Wawrinka, uh, Murray, and Isner. And he hasn't played with one with Djokovic. And there's no secret that once these two guys really didn't get along, but now they have buried the hatchet, and, you know, they kind of are more professional about it. And uh, uh, so do you see Djokovic being part of the Labor Cup team? you think Federer and Gottsik would approach him or you think this is the year that he was just injured and that's why he didn't entertain the idea? I, I think they have to approach him if they want to continue to keep this tournament uh, be legitimate, right? I mean, you, you cannot ignore, I think, one of the greatest players of all time if, if you want to continue to run this tournament uh, as pitting the best against the best. So for that reason, they would do it. I think for that same reason, Djokovic, I think for his own personal image, will not say no. Um, but it, it will be interesting to see if the the event itself brings these people together, right? Yeah, that would be the dream team, I think. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Wawrinka. I would, feel re- I would feel really bad for John McEnroe and his team. No, Andy Murray would play because Brexit, right? He wouldn't be part of... <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Brexit won't be. Yeah. So this is Euro against the rest. <laughs> yeah. And Murray, Kerrios, Del Potro, Nishikori, it wouldn't look that bad if those guys are there. <laughs> I think if Murray is on the other side, maybe, maybe. Uh, but but I would be I would be waiting for this maybe five years from now when when some of the other younger players actually uh, come through. What do you think of Chicago? Uh, how do you think Chicago will embrace this event? Well, they, I'm they... deeply disappointed as you are that it's not in Boston. Yeah. Uh, we had the opportunity to watch a few um, exhibition events, I should say, uh, happen here in Boston, and they were huge successes. Uh, I watched Pete Sampras and McEnroe and the rest play here and. Um, in the Celtics arena, and it, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, there's there's some big tennis fans out here. Well, unfortunately for us, Chicago is guarded, but Chicago is centrally located. I think that there's there's going to be a lot of people flying in to watch this. Yeah, they're going to play in the house Jordan built, and I think twenty three or twenty four thousand capacity. I think it's going to sell out, without a doubt. And uh, I don't know. I asked uh, Richard Evans today, and we can obviously you know uh, check on the ATP. Website, but I remember reading there used to be a WCD tournament back in the 80s in Chicago. I see. When there was indoor circuit running from Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas. So big time tennis hasn't been in Chicago area for close to 30 years. It is It is a big miss, right? If you consider most of the major American cities have something. Um, you know, you got the Indian Wells on the West Coast. You have the US Open, of course. Chicago not having a major tennis tournament is, is a miss. Um now is the Labor Cup the right event? I'm not sure, but yeah, um, this is this is more like a Federer Nadal roadshow. I mean, you know, like uh, wherever they go, it's going to be huge. And if you add Novak to it, it's going to be even you know, it's going to be grand. If this wasn't already grand, so all right. So let's talk about uh, uh, Damir Jumor. You know, he came up with a solid win last week. Uh, have you seen this guy? Because I've seen him against Rublev at the Open, and the guy's pretty feisty. Packs a punch for his size, chases down a lot of balls. Uh, doesn't have an outstanding big weapon like most guys do, but uh, it's pretty good. I mean, he you, played... you know who he reminds me of well, in a weird sort of way is a guy like Davidenko. 
um, kind of punches above his weight. Yeah, and but Davidenko's ground strokes were just a little more powerful, I think. But Davidenko is a much better player than Jamor. But yeah. also, but Davidenko, uh, I guess where I'm going is he had this tendency to go into these streaks where he would beat a series of top players uh, at these tournaments. And Jumar had some really impressive results in the last two weeks. No, definitely. Kudos to him. And uh, now, how do you see the two fields? Uh, are you intrigued by the Beijing field or Tokyo field? or uh, Because as we head into the fall season, uh, Rafa Nadal, uh, Dimitrov, uh, Sasha Zverev, Kyrgios, uh, it's a pretty star-studded field in uh I think for me, for me, there's, there's a lot of storylines here, which is all the people who started the year strong, right? People like Dimitrov, people like Sok. These are guys who started the year strong. We thought that they would actually make some waves, break through in a couple of these Grand Slams. And then it did not happen. Um, Dimitrov even had a second win towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't do much. The question is now, starting here with Beijing through the end of the year, are these guys going to actually somehow salvage the rest of the year for themselves? Um, Talking about salvage, your man Luca Pui is up against Rafa Nadal in a few hours in the first round match. Uh, Pui is someone who's been kind of struggling on form, even in Davis Cup. After the US Open, he lost uh, and forced us to Dushan Lajovic. So do you see this as this is a match where he can, you know, resurrect uh, the slump, or you think Nadal comes through? I think Nadal comes through. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'm just going on a limb and saying that uh, Puy has obviously shown that he's he's able to beat Rafa, and this is not uh, Rafa's favorite court by by, by any means. Um, but having said that, I mean, Puy, what a disappointment! Just like the other two guys I mentioned, um, we were waiting for one of these guys to break through, and uh, and the way they started the year or ended last year. I actually thought that this is going to be the year where we'll see one of these guys come out and be a slam finalist or even a winner. And that did not happen. Um, so, who who else is in the draw? Let's let's. A couple walk. of good matches tonight. One is, again, we talked about Jamur. Jamur's taking about Grigor Dimitrov. Again, the guy who you were talking about. Yeah, and, and Sok and Rublev. Sok and Rublev. Yeah, that's uh, the Cold War match. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good match. I think Rublev would be the favorite. No, he just uh, lost a pretty one-sided match last week. So, you don't know. I mean, the season is long. A lot of time we don't appreciate uh, the grind, the travel it is. I know these are cliches, but just imagine. I mean, you, know, you travel a lot for work and you're not the same, you know, on Monday or Tuesday when you come back from that flight. Sure. And the other g- good match for me is uh, Zverev against... Uh, this is Sasha Zverev against um, Kyle Edmund. Uh, who I think is is a very, you know, for me, I've always seen, I, I, as you know, Sakib, I'm a big fan of Andy Roddick. And Edmund, for me, always is, it reminded me of the younger Roddick. You know, oh, the yeah. big... You were going to say Jim Courier. <laughs> <laughs> no, the big, big forehand, big serve, and, you know, the one-two punch. Uh, he has that going, and uh, who knows? I mean, he might break through uh, next year at Wimbledon. Uh, but Sasha's wherever is going to have his hands full. Make a pick who's going to win this. I know you haven't really studied the draw, but it has some big names here with Nadal and uh, Isner, Dimitrov, uh, Kyrgios. I'm going to pick Zverev, actually, because, uh, you know, he, he's been up and down a bit, but I think he's starting to come into his own in the three-set format. He has become very consistent. He's got a lot to prove having lost last week. Um, I think here he, he actually takes the title. How, how do you see it going? Uh, I pick, uh, I don't know, it's tough. I think uh, I'm going to pick Nick Kyrgios to come out. Whoa. And I would not pick Nick 
even if I was paid to picnic uh, because it's, it's he's just one of these guys who I've been burned so many times that you know I don't want to go there just like Dimitro I like playing with fire so I'm not going to play safe yeah it's going to be Nick over uh, Rafa and who's Nick playing in the first round uh Basilashvili, so yeah. So you you actually see him beating Basilashvili. I mean, if this was Nick against Rafa, here's here's the problem with Nick, right? If you told me, hey, Anand, Nick is going to play Rafa tomorrow. Who who's going to come out win? I'll say, yeah, I think Nick has got a pretty good chance. Now you tell me Nick is going to play Basilashvili. I'm like, holy crap! This is this is a, <laughs> this is a banana peel for. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be objective and uh, not objective. <laughs> what's the right word? I'm going to be a little hopeful and optimistic about Kyrgios. He's coming back on uh, building blocks of Davis Cup and Labor Cup. So a lot of, uh, you know, those two team events where he was the man. He liked that idea, delivered for his mates. I think some of his, some of this is going to carry. And uh, and let's not forget, before U.S. Open, he had a pretty good week in Cincinnati. U.S. Open, he was injured against Millman. He, it's his buddy. He didn't, you know, he didn't default. He I, finished I think, the match. I think we can agree on talent. Nick, Nick should be winning this event. Um, but I just don't. I cannot bet on a guy who who's let me down so many times. Uh, let me go back and ask you about your guy, uh, Dominic Team. Is he playing this event? Uh, Dominic Team is in Tokyo. Dominic Team opens today, I believe, uh, against uh, uh, Steve Johnson. Yeah, in a rematch of that emotional match at uh, Roland Garros. So, yeah, I want to talk about Team. I know we we already passed uh, Labor Cup. I think uh, the for me one of the takeaways was him playing Isner and you know Dominic Team's Achilles heel. Even though we are not technical. Uh, you know, in tennis knowledge, like in strokes and, you know, the mechanics. But it's pretty clear. The book on team is, you know, the big servers take away time from him on faster or, you know, like medium hard courts. And uh, Anderson and Del Porto were two of the type who beat him in Washington when team had match points and then Del Porto at US Open. This is a match that's kind of lost in the narrative of Federer Nadal, the Fedal, you know, like doubles and Kyrgios and Sock. Uh, I think team delivered one of the big, you know, big wins in Labor Cup, especially in, you know, in two tie breaks, you know, I think uh, he played uh, John Isner. Uh, I don't know how that's going to, you know, translate to the tour if he's exercised any of those demons. But I think to me, there was a single most important win on either side that, you know, that may go a long way, you know, in deciding. Uh, I, I think, I mean, personally for me, uh, personally for me, Isner is used to winning a lot of tiebreakers. Isner is used to losing a lot of tiebreakers. It so happened he lost a couple. And guess what? He won a couple too later on in the tournament. Um, so for team to win this, he might take something away yeah, from I'm it. I'm not saying Isner will lose any sleep over this because that's Isner's career. You know, he's a right, he's but, a guy, but, but even but. even for team, I think uh, I, I think your point is valid. I mean, the guy has been losing to these big servers for a while now. Um, I'm just not sure if he's going to take a whole lot from this into the next tournament. I, I think he definitely... No, no he already lost in Chengdu last week. No, no, what you I mean know, is like in, in his career against big servers, if he's going to start feeling a lot more confident. Um, look, look, compared to Sasha and Nick, he may not be as talented, but this guy's a workhorse. To me, he's more like a mustard. You know, who has to figure out how to play on, you know, with his huge wingspan and, you know, standing 10, 15, week, you know, 15 feet uh, behind the baseline, playing like 20 plus weeks already. So I think this is like a workhorse in the mooster mold. I think you just have to find a way. And I know a lot of people don't find him as appealing as the other two guys or even Shapovalov. But I think team is legit just purely on grounds of, uh, you know, work ethic and hard work. You know, he he wants this. I, I He's going to figure things out. I think I mean. where team, we all expect team to figure things out is at the French Open, right? On hard courts, 
I still think he's 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 got a. I mean, maybe when he wins the French Open, that that gives him the kind of confidence to go out and win win in the hard courts. But I just don't see him being a big enough threat here, um, unless uh, something fundamentally changes in his game. All right. So before we forget, you know who else won last week? David Goffin. You know, like after that, he's answer, back. He's back yeah, after this unfortunate injury in French Open. This guy finally won his first title in more than three years. He's number 11 in the race to the World Tour Finals, with that meaning he's number 9 because uh, both Novak and Wawrinka have called it a season. So how do you see, compare him to team? I know you like Goffin a lot, and uh, what's the upside to this guy? And he's going to be playing a Davis Cup final. Could that be a launchpad of greater things in 2018 for Goffin? I know you had a chance to speak with Goffin, and you also I had remember a... that, huh, in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> and and you asked him the same same question. When are, when are we going to see this breakthrough happen, right? Uh, I mean, it, the, the injury was unfortunate. Uh, but we, I think also we know that his ceiling is, is limited. Um, even if he does breakthrough, it might be the one-off slam where he does really well. I just don't see him you know, consistently being in semis and finals or slams. Um, so Look, it, anything can happen. This US Open, even though Nadal won, sometimes we say, oh yeah, it's always a big four. Federer had back issues, Del Potro was spent and he beat Federer. And if somehow somebody had beaten Nadal, this could have been a Kevin Anderson Delpo final. Where sure, Delpo I was. mean that that that's things the, can happen. I mean, I don't, they haven't happened in a while, but that's the key, right? I mean, if you look back at the last ten, twenty years, there are these small windows, right? Like where Thomas Johansson won the you know Australian Open. You have those windows. No, that's called the Safin revolving door. I mean, that's just not a window. <laughs> that's just someone just fell asleep in the final. <laughs> yeah. What about Peter Carter winning? Uh, with all due respect to a man who gave us our first interview break. Um, that too, for me, was as a window that he capitalized on. Um, Kafelnikov, some would argue, also broke through at a window. Yeah, Kafelnikov won two majors. So, and and uh, I, I respectfully will also say that Leighton Hewitt and Andy Roddick broke through when um, there was a small window there before Federer came into his own. So, my my point is, can Goffin be that person? Well, it could be Goffin or any number of players. I mean, I don't see anything particularly special about Goffin that would put him on the top of that list. Um, that's the way I see Goffin's game. I mean, I, I think Dominic Thiem is more likely to win a slam in the next year than Goffin. And I, I think we're going to see that happen at the French Open. Okay, so before we wrap things up, uh, Federer's going to return back, I think, as promised, he said uh, he's going to go to Shanghai a little early. So how do you see the rest of the uh, year folding, uh, unfolding for Roger? I know he really wants it. He's kind of downplaying because Nadal almost had a 1,900-point lead. So I don't think Federer is too concerned with the number one ranking. So what do you think? Is he going to go full flight in Shanghai, Basel, uh, Paris? Or he's going to skip Paris? Uh, how do you see Roger's last four events? I'm not sure what he's going to do, but I would like him to go easy because I think at this stage of his career, it is really about winning slams and maybe doing really well at the World Tour Finals. You probably would want to win this. He hasn't won that in like almost six years now. That's true. And, and for me, it's, it really is... Let's let's do what you did last year, Roger. I mean, you've you've got the template for success. You've taken breaks, come back, and you've played extremely well. Yeah, it did not work out perfectly at uh, at the U.S. Open, but you were carrying an injury, right? Uh, otherwise, I think he would have gotten into you know prime form by by the time of the U.S. Open. It was unfortunate that um, you know he hurt himself, but. I think it's a great template at his age. He he needs to just replicate it again one more year and take advantage of 
I would say what I think is the inevitable return of Djokovic to the to the top. Uh, take advantage of this gap here, uh, because when Djokovic is back next year, I, I I don't see him being this pale shadow of a player that he was for the last year and a half that we've seen. No, agreed. Next year is going to be pretty exciting uh, given all the comebacks. Uh, how about another winner we had on the WTA side, Caroline Garcia? I know you always thought she had the talent, but now she's winning titles. Uh, is this something meaningful? Is she Singapore bound? I know she's, I think, 11 or 12 yeah, in the race. You know, the thing is, I, I don't know if you remember, Sakib, many years ago when she was uh, playing, I can't remember, it was at the US Open. Andy Murray actually tweeted uh, saying that Caroline Garcia was going to be a future world number one. Yeah, she's only 24, so I think I don't think that ship has sailed yet, has it? Well, I think it has, actually, because I watched her play at the US Open. One of the things that struck me about Garcia is that there's not a whole lot of variety that she's added to her game. Um, she is a bit of a one-dimensional baseline player. Uh, she had a good win, but again, she did not beat a top player. She beat Ashley Barty, who's coming into her own. By the way, Barty has a lot of upside. I think Barty is one player you can watch out for in, in the next, next year. Uh, she's beating a lot of the top players now. Um, but I think uh, Garcia caught a break. Uh, she's done well for herself, but um, I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't see her, uh, you know, taking this to another level. And uh, before we wrap things up, Martina Hengis is going to be back at world number one in doubles. What a phenomenal feat that is. I think it's a very underrated achievement. Um, as much as we have talked about the singles players, we've talked about Venus Williams doing what she's doing, which is incredible. Um, Martina Hingis deserves to be a story as well because it's not just doubles but she's also dominating mixed doubles and as much as people think well this is a secondary uh, part of the sport um, playing with different partners and consistently winning no matter who's playing with you I think she's beaten Mirza a few times now. she's now beaten Mirza and it really shows to me that um, you know I think she, she's, she's a talent that, that's, that's an all time great uh, in the sport. Uh, and if not for those injuries that happened, um, you know, the, the first time around that, that stopped her from playing. I mean, we, who knows what could have happened with her career. I don't know. I always think uh, it's like, what, like 13, 14 years ago when she first retired. I always think it was more psychological. I don't know if it was, it was, I mean, there's so many situations is... of burnout, but no player deserves to retire in, in their early twenties when they've won five slams. And and this is a person who, as much as people think Martina Hingis was getting out-hit by the Williams, that was not true at all. She just was losing the crucial matches. She was making those finals at the Australian Open. She lost to Capriati twice. She beat the Williams. Um, no, I think she, she had a pretty, uh, if not favorable, I think she had a good rivalry with Venus. I think it was Serena and Capriati who were beating her more. But they weren't dominating her. I think that this is where the storylines always fudged a bit. As the fact of the matter is she held her own against even these, these girls. Uh, now, Serena did become something else, right? I mean, I'm, I don't think anyone would argue that Martina Hingis at her best would challenge Serena at her best. But I, I, I think the talent level that Hingis possesses would have got her more slams had she stuck through it and even probably potentially had a, a coaching change instead of having a mom coach her. Uh, she just lost, I think, the peak years of her career um, because of some bad choices. Um, but it, it still is such a refreshing story to see her come back and 
absolutely dominate doubles tennis, uh, both in uh, women's doubles and mixed mixed doubles. All right, so this was a very nice chat with Anand, catching up again on a lot of tennis issues. By the way, Anand, have you listened to the Rajiv Ram podcast before I ask others? Have, what's of your, course. I... <laughs> what's your excuse? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my excuse is that I, I have no time to even breathe right now. And uh, Sakib, I'm ju- I've just been holding my breath for the last half an hour talking to you. No, that's good. Anand has a very tough, demanding job. I mean, he's an executive in... I mean, I'm someone, you know... I'm an executive li- slave. That's yeah. more like it. Yeah, I've listened to my own podcast two, three times. And I need a life. So, yeah, give it a listen. Rajiv Ram had a victorious week. Uh, yesterday, he, I think, uh, backed the double style with Austrian Peya. And now he's back, I believe, in uh, Tokyo with uh, his regular partner, uh, Raven Klassen. And I, I think that podcast is special, not only because it's an interview with Rajiv Ram, but it's also an, an interview with his wife, uh, who's traveling with him on the tour. Uh, it's a very unique perspective that... Uh, yeah, she gave him a full-time career of medical sales and people make good money doing that. So this is, you know, something they both decided, Yeah, you know, because Rajiv was traveling with coaches and, you know, they were doing a lot of FaceTime. And if, if I may say so, there's there's no other forum or no other, uh, um, you know, TV show or even a podcast that has done an interview like this. Uh, oh, come of, on. <laughs> of, of, no, it hasn't. Yeah. I mean, let's let's just be real about it. It's, it is a very special podcast. I hope you guys listen to it. And there's a good question in the podcast is about doubles because most players at our level, at the rec level or club level, are doubles players. So just give it, give that podcast a listen if you already have not and share it with your friends. Uh, I think that was one of uh, the best interviews we have done. Absolutely. All right. Till we talk again, have a, enjoy the rest of the week in Beijing and Tokyo and talk to you guys soon. Bye. Have a good one.